The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 7. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Impanitas, who is the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Kelly. Good morning, everybody. We are uh, we're pausing for one week uh, from our summer series in Philippians. And uh, today, what we're talking about is uh, uh, the Bible and also church history with respect to uh, the elevation of women. Uh, it's not the elevation of women above men, it's the elevation of women as equals to men, which was uh, a countercultural concept uh, in the first century AD. And uh, there are practical reasons for us to cover these things as well. One is that roughly half of uh, the directors of Christ Presbyterian staff uh, are women. Uh, we have women advising our elders on every significant decision and discussion in our church. Uh, we have women who serve as teachers, as connect group facilitators, uh, worship involvement, such as reading scriptures, such as uh, leading in prayer, such as giving testimonies, uh, assisting the presiding minister after he sets the table uh, for the Lord's Supper uh, by serving at the various tables around the sanctuary. And then tonight will be a, a first time for us as we ordain and install our next group of elders and deacons. We're also commissioning our very first group ever of deaconesses. And uh, so what I want to do is just um, talk about what the conversations are around these things, what the history and especially what the scripture is around these things. But I will uh, just acknowledge at the very beginning that there are a range of viewpoints uh, on these things within uh, Christianity and among those who take the Bible very seriously as their only rule uh, for faith and practice, as our, as our uh, denominational documents say. On one side of the continuum, uh, there is a, a group of people that would identify themselves as egalitarians. Those are men and women who, based on their own understanding of what Scripture teaches, uh, believe that women should also be able to serve as pastors, elders, and preachers. Uh, we, on the other hand, at Christ Pres, are within the complementarian tradition, uh, which uh, would say that women can, particularly from where we're coming from, women uh, are, are, are invited by the Lord and welcomed by the Lord into any and all forms of service and leadership and, and, and so on, uh, except for uh, the, the, the unique roles that are assigned to elders in the Scriptures, which would have to do with pastoring, eldering, overseeing, uh, preaching, and so on. And some may 
ask the question, uh, have we gone far enough with our decision to commission deaconesses? And those would be folks who would come from a more egalitarian perspective, whereas on the other side of the continuum, there might be some within the complementarian tradition that would say, are we going too far? Because doesn't 1 Timothy chapter 2 say, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man? Now, egalitarians about verses like this would say, well, um, that's more of a cultural statement uh, uh, confined to first century Middle Eastern uh, cultural situations, whereas complementarians would point to how, uh, how uh, uh, Paul completes that sentence. He says, for Adam was formed first, and then Eve was formed. And so he refers all the way back to the way God created things to be. And so there's, there's a little bit of a dance here and uh, a lot of nuance and a lot of care that has to be uh, invested as we interpret these scriptures mainly and chiefly and primarily in light of what the rest of the scriptures have to say about these issues. And so uh, Genesis 2 is significant, where it says that Eve was created by God as a helper corresponding to Adam. And Ephesians chapter 5 talks about how the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. These are, um, these are potentially inflammatory words, helper and head. Uh, and, and to our modern 21st century uh, sensibilities, uh, they feel, at least to some of us, culturally regressive, emotionally unsatisfying, possibly demeaning until we understand them in light of their original context. You know, God says in the Scriptures, Ephesians chapter 5, the husband is the head of the wife. Remember the movie, big, My Big Fat Greek Wedding? Remember where uh, the wife, who is you know, a force to be reckoned with, uh, a worldwide event in her own right, as Pastor David Filson might say, there's this moment where she says, it is true that the husband is the head, but the wife is the neck, and the neck turns the head. <laughs> Biblically, we are given a vision of a partnership between equals, not a hierarchy. A partnership, not a hierarchy. How does this play out in the home and in the church? Those in our particular tradition would say that man and woman are on a shared mission side by side with teamwork and a whole lot of consensus building and no authoritarianism. A whole lot of consensus building and no authoritarianism. And if there, is a, uh, if there is a disagreement that cannot be resolved, God has entrusted the responsibility in the home to the husband and in the church to the elders to break the tie. But if he is loving her as Christ loved the church, laying down his life for her, he has to make a really, really good case for going with his desires over hers. Otherwise, most often, he is going to go with whatever her preferences and her needs and her desires are over his to exercise his leadership. See, so it's, it's not an authoritarian thing. It's not a paternalistic thing or even a patriarchal thing. 
The other word, helper, it sounds so wifey-wifey. It sounds so, oh, she can't fend for herself, and so she can just come alongside and sort of help him a little bit, maybe like a toddler, you know, helps mom and dad, you know, do a few chores around the house. How sweet. It's not like that at all. Don't import your own cultural baggage on what the Scriptures say. Because in the Scriptures, God also identifies Himself as a helper. The Hebrew word there is ezer. It's the same exact word that's used of of Eve in reference to her coming alongside Adam. She contributes, the helper contributes a strength that otherwise would be lacking without her in the picture. When God created Eve, He did not take Eve out of Adam's back. He took her out of His side which means there is a side-by-side dynamic, not a come follow me and be my servant sort of dynamic. What you have in the dance of the sexes is equal partnership. She is an equal partner to him, not a personal servant for him. So that's sort of setting the stage. The comedian Jim Carrey said that behind every great man is a woman rolling her eyes. Katie Luther, the wife of the famed Martin Luther, who was the pioneer of the Protestant Reformation, um, there's a story told about how Martin Luther was going through a season of moroseness and negativity and cynicism and self-pity and self-declared victimhood for the treatment that he was receiving for his ministry. And so Katie decided that she was going to dress herself and also all of their children in black one day. Martin shows up, everybody's dressed in black, and he says, well, who died? And Katie says, haven't you heard? God died. God is dead. And we all know this by virtue of the fact that you are living essentially as a functional atheist, as if he doesn't exist. God is dead. We're just following your leadership. Sometimes the he needs the she to be redirected back to him. The he is much less without the she, and vice versa. In the beginning, God created male and female in his image. How does this play out? So what I'd like to do this morning, as we unpack Romans 16 in particular, is to look at slippery slopes... To understand what it means for the Bible to be its own interpreter, and then finally a call to sobriety. So, first, slippery slopes. So, by doing a new thing in our church, are we somehow capitulating to the culture? Are we somehow diminishing our esteem for the Bible and the things that it teaches around the subject of gender partnership? What I want to do is is to affirm that we're actually doing the opposite. It's not a lower view of the Bible. It's a high view of the Bible that has led our elders to these conclusions and has has led us to this new uh, initiative at our church. It is a mistake on the one hand to take offense at, to downplay the significance, to downplay the, the force and the authority of any part of Scripture, including and especially those parts of Scripture that we do not like or that we do not resonate with or that we do not understand or that we do not emotionally connect with in such a way that gives us peaceful, easy, positive feelings. 
In fact, the true test of our surrender to Scripture is what we are doing with those Scriptures that we don't particularly enjoy having to apply to our own lives and situations. And so what I want to say, you know, first is that 1 Timothy chapter 2, where it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, is equally valid, is equal in relevance to Romans chapter 16, where, where Paul is esteeming Phoebe, and he's esteeming Junia, and Mary, and Priscilla, and, and others. They are equal. They interpret one another. They help us understand these, these apparently contradictory verses, help us understand that neither is contradictory, and that together they give us the full picture, just like male and female give us the full picture of the image of God. It is never a Christian's job to decide which parts of Scripture are relevant and which parts aren't, which parts we're going to get on board with and which parts we're not. You know, when we were in seminary, uh, professor, uh, New Testament professor uh, Robert Yarborough from Covenant Seminary uh, told us about a German theologian, Adolf Schlatter. He was, he was being tried and he was being scrutinized for his views and, and, and uh, you know, somebody asked him, Are, do you stand on the Word of God? And his answer was, absolutely not. I do not stand on the Word of God, sir. I stand under the Word of God, under, beneath, all the Word of God. So Kathy Keller, who um, is a friend of ours and uh, married to <clears throat> Tim Keller, who's the founding minister of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, uh, a few years ago wrote a pamphlet. It's actually available um, uh, called Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles. And it, it, it's, it's essentially a description or a telling or a memoir of sorts of her own story uh, around uh, the the you know, question of women in particular and the local church. And here's what, here's what she said. Here's how she set up the, this, uh, this, this uh, short booklet. She said, my first encounter with the ideas of male headship and female submission was both intellectually and morally traumatic. Why would she say that? It's because her first encounter with these teachings was when she was on a trajectory as a young woman to become an ordained minister of the gospel. Kathy graduated first in her class at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Tim graduated number two. But as Kathy would tell her story, as she put herself under the biblical text, she was led to this conclusion the justice or the rightness, the justice behind God's creation of male and female and His arrangement of the different roles He chose for them may not always be apparent to us. Why one and not the other? But should we expect our finitude to understand the infinite, omnipotent, wise, good, lovely, gracious justice of God? Perhaps some inkling resides in the dance of the sexes by which we reveal truth about the inner life of the triune God. The rest is clothed in mystery to which we yield with full confidence that it is meant for our good. I do not stand on the Word of God. I stand under it. Equally problematic to the slippery slope in the direction of 
playing fast and loose with the Word of God, discarding what we don't like, there's another slippery slope in the other direction. It is also a dangerously problematic slippery slope when you slip in the other direction toward a more limiting, limiting uh, perspective and practice than the Bible itself. Mary Beth McGreevy is uh, a member of uh, a Presbyterian church, part of our denomination, part of our group, part of our tribe in St. Louis, Missouri. And Mary Beth, a couple of years ago, was given an opportunity to address the entire general assembly of our church, which is, which is essentially all of the pastors and the elders who gather once a year together for a big meeting. And Mary Beth was uh, telling from her own perspective what it has been like to, um, to, to, to be a woman in the denomination that she loves, but that is also sometimes frustrated with along these lines. She says it's like this. It's like I'm driving a car with a powerful engine on a one-lane street, and I'm going the speed, I want to go the speed limit. The speed limit is 50 miles an hour, but there's a man in a car in front of me driving 35. And I look out the window and I say, come on, buddy, pick it up, hit the gas a little bit. And he looks out the window, he stops the car, looks out the window, and he says, I'm going 35 because I don't want you to break the speed limit. And she says, come on, I have this powerful car, I have places to go, I have things to do, and I have a difference to make, and I can go 15 miles an hour faster and not be breaking the law. You know, there are two ways to cause an accident on the road. One is to drive too fast, one is to drive too slow. And so there's this question I'll invite the, uh, the PowerPoint to show us an image from a, a documentary. Is anybody up there? I guess nobody's up there. Oh, there they are. Okay, sorry. Somebody's hiding behind a computer screen. So this is a documentary called Man and Wire. It's about this guy who um, snuck up. I don't know how this happened, but he snuck up to the Twin Towers and, and uh, did this. Walked across the, the Twin Towers on this line, this wire that he's walking on. You can see below him is the peak of the Empire State Building. He's so high off the ground. You ever hear the question, what if we get too close to the line? We want to be really careful not to get too close to the line. If you're walking a tightrope, where do you want to be? You want to be a little bit away from the line because the line might cut your feet, give you a blister or two? Or do you want to be right on it? You want to be right on the line. If Scripture is the line, you do not need to create an ecosystem to keep you away from the line for fear of crossing over it. Because as you keep yourself away for fear of crossing over it, guess what you're doing? You're crossing over it. You're just slipping in the traditional conservative direction instead of the uh, modernist liberal direction, you could say. Or vice versa. The moralist error is to subtract from Scripture. I don't like that part, therefore I dismiss it as culturally and or emotionally unsatisfying. 
But then on the other side, there is the traditionalist error of adding to Scripture, of standing away from the line rather than seeking to live your whole life right on top of the line. This was what Jesus called the Pharisees and the scribes out for constantly. You might remember, if you've read the Gospels, what He said, you nullify the Word of God for the sake of your traditions, for your southern conservative traditions, for your northern progressive traditions, for your your Pharisee traditions, for your Sadducee traditions. You nullify the Word of God. You're not on board with Him. If somehow you have gotten to the place where you've been willing to baptize your own emotional considerations and cultural commitments and traditions over the very Word of God itself, and you're willing just to dismiss graphe, that which is written and inspired by the Lord Himself. That's all the way back to the garden, folks. Did God really say? Did God really say? You've got the liberal error where, where they're eating the fruit that's forbidden. You've also got the conservative error where, 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 where Satan says, well, did God say that you, you shouldn't eat the forbidden fruit or the fruit of the garden? And Eve said, hey, he said that we shouldn't eat it and we shouldn't even touch it. God never said you shouldn't touch it. You've got Phariseeism and Sadduceeism. You've got Southern traditionalism and Northern modernism and progressivism. Both there in the Garden of Eden. Both are flat wrong. Both are off the grid. Both are slipping over the line, onto one side or another to your peril. You add to the Word of God, you subtract from the Word of God, you lose Jesus. You lose the gospel. You lose Christianity. You lose truth. You lose the life-giving law for some construction of your own making. Revelation 22, very last chapter of the Bible, anyone who adds to this or takes away from this Word, plagues will afflict you and your share in the tree of life will be taken from you. It's dangerous to slip in either direction. The Bible, secondly, has to be its own interpreter. Neither my southernness nor my northernness, neither my traditional approach nor my progressive approach should be the thing that leads me to my own decisions about what the Scripture is actually saying. The Scripture must lead me to my conclusions about what the Scripture is saying. And when that is my way of doing things, my liberal friends are going to label me as being too conservative, and my conservative friends are going to label me as being too liberal on any contestable issue, on any debatable issue. That's just going to happen. There are going to be 5% over here and 5% over here who think that I'm off my rocker, who think I'm unfaithful in one direction or another, And then they're going to be the reasonable people who are looking at the whole Scripture the whole time for for all of life. Where are we going to be on that continuum? Romans 16 alone. Paul greets 28 people in Romans chapter 16, a mixture of men and women. And if you examine it really closely, you'll notice that he offers a personal word of encouragement to over 50% of the women and also to just over 30% of the men. So is Paul being an androgynous here? Is he he trying to emasculate men, diminish men somehow? No. He's trying to create a playing field that says men and women are created equal. Men and women are equally 
the image of God because they're in a culture that says the opposite. They're in a culture that says that women are lesser than, that women are there to be personal assistants to the men. They should be seen but not heard. The divorce laws were filled with double standards. Under no circumstances was a woman allowed to divorce her husband. A husband was allowed to divorce his wife for burning the toast. John chapter 8, have you ever ever read the episode of the woman caught in the act of adultery and the religious leaders, all all men, bring her out and and they they plan to destroy her for the sin that she has been caught in. You ever wonder why they didn't bring the the man out also? You ever wonder why it was just the woman who was held culpable for this? A woman was not regarded in those days as a trustworthy witness in a court of law, and so they weren't allowed to testify in a court of law. Even when the women who were there witnessing the resurrection of Jesus go to the apostles, go to to the men, and say, we've seen the Lord, He's risen, it says that some of them doubted. Why would they doubt? Because it's women who are bringing us this news. That's the way things worked along the lines of gender back then. And here we have Paul. He mentions several women by name. Here's some examples. Mary. We're not sure who the Mary is that he's referring to, but we, we do know that there are a whole lot of Marys in the Bible, and, and they're, all, they're all prominent. We've got the Virgin Mary, who like you know, Hannah's song, uh, also composed a, a magnificent song that we, that we, that we read and pray and, and sometimes preach during the Advent season. We, we know it as the Magnificat, my soul magnifies the Lord. That was Mary, a woman. Her words are Scripture. Do you ever think about this too? I read this in a blog. It really just kind of grabbed me. That Jesus' first nine months of incarnate life were lived inside a feminine womb. Then there's Mary Magdalene, who's invited into the inner ring with Jesus and the other disciples. Again, they're the resurrection witnesses. There are two Marys there, and they are commissioned. They are charged with having the privilege of bringing the good news to the apostles that Christ is risen, including Peter, who had failed. And the angel says, go tell the others and Peter, go restore him. This is your privilege to gush grace over the one who feels most ashamed. You get to do that, Mary, and you too, Mary. What a gift. And then we got Mary at Bethany, who we see in, in, in Luke's gospel is sitting at Jesus' feet, receiving what he has to say. She's a theology student. No rabbi would, 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 would let any uh, student sit at his feet to, to listen to and learn his teaching and, and his doctrine and theology. If, if that person was not taken seriously as a future servant and, and teacher and evangelist and, and, and missionary of the gospel. And then there's Prisca, who is also presented in other parts of the Scripture as Priscilla. How do we know it's the same person? Because likewise here, she's married to the man named Aquila. Paul identifies her as a fellow worker, fellow, alongside, not behind. She's not my personal assistant. She's my partner in ministry, along with the others. She risked her neck, he says. She has influenced churches, several churches. And she and her husband Aquila host a church 
in their own home. If you go to the 18th chapter of Acts, you see that, that, that Priscilla and Aquila together, husband and wife team, are teaching the Word of God more accurately to Apollos, who is arguably the strongest, most formidable preacher in the first century church. And commentators, even the most conservative commentators, will notice, they will take note that Priscilla's name is mentioned first instead of Aquila's name, which is very uncommon. It's usually the husband who's mentioned first and the wife who's mentioned second. And most commentators will say it's because she was the prominent teacher in all likelihood as they were instructing a pastor and a preacher about how to preach well, how to get the truth right. And then there's Junia, identified by Paul as a kinsman, again, a fellow prisoner alongside rather than behind, well known to the apostles. All three of these set a precedent for us that gifted, spirit-filled women are sanctioned by God to teach, influence, and serve, to be helpers in the most dignifying sense of the word, that, who add a strength that is lacking If you're complementarian like we are in the male pastors and elders, we need the strength and perspective of the she in order for the he to love and to lead well. Then you've got the Old Testament we've heard earlier in the service from Miriam, who's identified by the Bible in the book of Exodus as a prophet, also the music director in Israel, Deborah, who's a judge, Esther, who functions essentially as a savior of the people of Israel who, who are on the brink of extinction, and, and she sweeps in using her position of power and influence to, to rescue them from peril. We've got the Proverbs 31 wife of excellent or noble character who also happens to be a prominent businesswoman in her community. And then the New Testament, we've got Anna. There's another prophet the prophet Anna. We've got Tabitha, who's doing deacon work, good works, and acts of charity. We've got Lydia, who, who is a business owner and leader and also hosts a church in her home. And Paul's instructing the Corinthian church in his Corinthian letters about how the worship service should go uh, at the local church and within the, 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 the life of the worship service between the benediction and the call to worship, between the call to worship and the benediction, you've got women offering prayers, you've got women prophesying. Not all of our traditions will support that, but our scriptures will. Joel chapter 2, also repeated in Acts chapter 2, quoted in Acts chapter 2, says in the last days after Pentecost, the days of the Holy Spirit, which are the days that we're in right now too, it says, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Even on my male servants and female servants, I will pour out my spirit. And then we've got Phoebe. And this brings us to the deaconess question. The English Standard Bible, which is uh, widely the most trusted English translation uh, in our circles, in sort of Reformed Presbyterian circles. One of my predecessors, Ray Ortland, was actually the translator of the book of Isaiah. That's how closely tied we are as a church to the ESV. And in the ESV, it translates Phoebe a servant in the church, but there's a footnote because the ESV is very responsible to footnote where they have, where they're, they're not completely certain of their interpretation. And the footnote says, 
or deaconess. Now, why would they say that? Because the Greek word is diakonon, deacon. That's what the Greek word is. And specifically, diakonon or deacon of the church at Kenture. Interesting. What is a deacon? A deacon, according to where we've landed as a body of elders, a deacon plays a similar role in the church as a wife does in a marriage, a helper corresponding to, adding a strength that is lacking without. The elder office is the office of authority, the deacon office is the office of service and works of mercy and compassion and kindness. And so we don't see an incompatibility there. Deacons are the helpers to the heads, in other words. Are we the first to do this? The answer to that is no. You know, all the way back, early church history, there's no evidence anywhere in the first three centuries of church, church history of, of a woman who was a pastor or an elder, or a preacher, for that matter. All of the Greek words in the New Testament for elder, overseer, and bishop, they are only masculine words. The word deacon, the word diakonon, however, is a gender-neutral word in the Greek that, that can apply to both men and to women, as it does in the case of Phoebe. Church history also supports this conclusion. 111 AD, that's less than 20 years after the death of the Apostle John, there is literature referring to the existence of, of a group of servants in the local church called deaconesses. I can provide you with that information. It's actually on my blog. It's linked to on my blog if you want to look it up. There's also similar evidence in the writings and literature from the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries A.D. Since the Protestant Reformation, there have been the likes of John Calvin, uh, the Princeton theologian Benjamin Warfield, uh, the great Prince of, uh, Baptist Prince of Preachers Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, the former pastor of Philadelphia's 10th Presbyterian Church, James Montgomery Boyce, uh, all of whom have affirmed the place of a role in the church, some would say office, some would say role, in the church called deaconess. Today, you could add to that list Westminster theologian John Frame, Tim Keller, who I've already mentioned, John MacArthur, Philip Ryken, uh, president of Wheaton College, John Yates, who's the rector of the Falls Church in Virginia. Matt Chandler is the president of Acts 29 Network. I could give you a, a lot more that I could add to this list, but just telling you, we're not alone. We're not doing something creative. We're not innovating anything here. We're, we're, we're making our best effort to follow what we believe the Scriptures to say and what church history has backed up. I will also say that there are those who disagree with us. All of our pastors aren't on, aren't, aren't, aren't on the same page on, the, uh, on this. All of our elders aren't completely on the same page. Now, we are on the same page in terms of moving forward together. There, there's a non-contentiousness and an onboardness with it. Not all of our members are necessarily on board with this. And, and what we want in light of that is an environment that says it's okay to disagree agreeably on certain things. 
especially where a strong biblical case can be made in either direction. We're making the best call that we know how to make. Martin Luther uh, said that we are all like drunk people riding a horse. We're always at risk because of our drunkenness of either falling off that horse to the left or falling off that horse to the right. And the goal is not to get off the horse. The goal is to get sober and to stay on the horse, to, to stay on the tight wire, on the line. How do we stay sober? Augustine gave us, I think, the best answer for this. He was asked once, St. Augustine was asked, what are the top three virtues? And he said the top three virtues are humility, humility, and humility. I'll close with an example of what that could look like around these issues. So in 2017, sorry for all the Tim Keller references, but this one, this shoe really fits, I think. Tim Keller was named by Princeton University as the recipient of the Abraham Kuyper Prize in 2017. And Kuyper is, has been popularized, you know, by virtue of many things, including his famous statement, God looks at every square inch of his universe and declares it's mine. Uh, our Nashville Institute for Faith and Work Gotham program is, is built around, you know, Kuyperian thought and theology and doctrine and worldview, as was Redeemer's and is Redeemer's Center for Faith and Work, which was founded by a woman named Catherine Leary Alsdorf. I'll get to her in a minute. But Princeton, because of a backlash, rescinded the award from Keller in large part because of his complementarian views. You know, egalitarians on campus you know, sort of rose up and said, no complementarian is deserving of this award. No one who would demean women in such a way is deserving of this award. Unfortunately, there's an inconsistency in there in that Abraham Kuyper himself would not be able to win the award that carries his own name by virtue of what his views were on certain related matters. But even though they rescinded the award, they asked Tim if he would still deliver the keynote as they gave the award to somebody else. And this takes us to Augustine's answer to the virtue question. Tim's answer? Sure, I would be glad to do that. And then he knocked it out of the park. Catherine Alsdorf, um, who worked under Tim as an egalitarian for a couple of decades, wrote an essay you know, expressing her own reflection and disappointment in the rescinding of the Kuiper Award from Tim. And here's an excerpt, and I'll close with this. Catherine said, I do not share Tim's complementarian views. However, I'm deeply saddened about the Kuiper Award retraction. Tim and many others have come to their position about the roles of women in the church based on biblical study and deep reflection. I chose to submit to that view during my many years at Redeemer, I use the term submit intentionally. There are many things I have and will submit to in order to live out the life to which God has called me. 
I have worked at a church that is not complementarian, in which women, even when ordained, were marginalized more than those at Redeemer. Tim has lived out for me and many others how to live with biblical integrity, humility, and generosity, even on, especially on, issues where we disagree. There's more on the website. I think that's enough for now. I'm out of time. I'll leave us with this. God has called us to truth, and God has called us to peace. God has called us to live on the line and not to try to stay away from it for our own safety. When we try to stay away from the line for our own safety, we do so to our own peril. Let's think about that. Let's pray. Father, you've declared, whatever you meant by it, you have declared that you will pour out your Spirit on all flesh and that your sons and daughters will prophesy. And on your male servants and female servants, you will pour out your Spirit. Lord, if there's any course correction that we ever need on these things, would you grant us the grace of that course correction? Keep us on the line, Lord, and continue to give us abundant clarity and increasing clarity of what that line is. And it's your word that we will look to as our only infallible rule of faith and practice on such things, even if it violates our traditions, even if it violates our emotions, even if it violates our reason. Scripture alone. For when we try to subtract from what you've said, we subtract from Christ. And when we try to add to what you have said, we subtract from Christ. And that's terrifying. Protect us from that. In Jesus' name, amen.